The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and joining me today is a brand new guest, someone who's never been on the podcast before, John Learned, or is it John Learn? Learned, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're very learned, okay. <laughs> uh, John Learned, who has been freelancing for U.S. Gamer for a little while now, and he's written a number of good articles. I in I invited him onto the show because he wrote a really excellent interview with the localization team behind Final Fantasy XII, which, of course, is a cult favorite, especially around these parts. Uh, before we get to that part and also kind of the importance of localization in games, John, can you like introduce yourself for the audience? Yep. Hi, everybody. Um, yes, my name is John Learned, and I'm He's sort of on again, off again, freelance writer. And you can, I guess, more recently see a lot of myself on US Gamer, which has been awesome to work with. You guys are cool. And it is, um, cat super, super awesome to do some axe wielding with you. And, uh, I'm very excited to be here. Um, I've written stuff in the past for, um, like Twin Galaxies and Games Radar a couple years ago, but, uh, took some time off and now I'm here doing, good work for you and working on Final Fantasy twelve stuff, so hooray. And what's kind of your history with the RPG medium? Um, well, you know, I'm not a young dude, I guess, so I've been playing um RPGs ever since the NES and I I started with some Apple II stuff, but not quite like Wizardry Ultima stuff like that. But you know, I really kinda got into it with the NES, playing Dragon Warrior with you know, everybody who uh, had a Nintendo Power subscription back in the day and kind of moved on to Final Fantasy from there. And actually, RPGs were really not my thing, even though I played them and liked them. But it took me probably, and, and I played a lot of them, but it wasn't until probably Final Fantasy IV or Final Fantasy II, I guess, the U.S. version, where I was like, okay, I get it. This is this is how this stuff works. And um the stories are playing out in interesting ways and this game looks beautiful and I can't believe this is such a leap from the, the last game, not knowing any better. But um, from there, you know, like probably everybody that listens to this podcast, there was that ocean of role-playing games that came out between the PlayStation 1 and basically the end of the PS2 era. And that's pretty much all I played for years and years and years. And once I kind of rediscovered my love for them after kind of a, a bit of time away, um, that was, yeah, that's all I pretty much inhaled for like a solid decade or so and keep playing them. Now I've already grabbed a copy of legend of legacy and I've been playing, I'm like halfway through the, the new DLC for the Witcher three and, Yep, there's a lot of stats and dice rolls just kind of sitting around in my head right now. How far are you in like Legend of Legacy? Uh not very. I played the um I played the demo and I really liked it and I got you hit a wall fast after the demo is over. So I don't know if you've been playing very much of it or not, but I you get to an area in the demo where they kind of partition you off and they say, "Okay, you got to buy the game now. I hope you liked it. So I went out and went right out and bought it. 
And uh, that next area, it's, it's just a punch in the face. There's like sub-bosses floating around all over the place. The enemies are samey, but they come in, in greater packs. And there's um, a few more substantially difficult foes that you have to um, not really kind of change the way you've been playing but you you've got to it's it starts to get to be a bit of a grind at that point and uh legend of legacy has this kind of kook ball mechanic that if you run from a battle you start at the beginning of of whatever area that you're in not like right where you left off and you're blinking for a second you don't fight another fight it's you you run from a battle because you're about to get wiped and you can run from almost anything but you are started at the front of the map man and you got to run all the way back to where you were and hopefully you don't run into that situation again and it's pretty frustrating so i'm i'm trying to trying to work my way through it right now and it feels like i've been banging my head against the wall the last the last day or so but uh i guess ask me in a week yeah not to get too like sidetracked but of course this is what podcasts are for is getting sidetracked I was sure, talking staying to... on task. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, I was talking to somebody yesterday at an Exceed event about Legend of Legacy, and they said, "God, it's so hard." It's hard, man. It is. They're not kidding. Uh, they were like, "Yeah, I was doing pretty well, and I felt really good about myself, and I was plowing through the the monsters in a given area." And I was like, "Oh, I can handle this. I can. I'm ready to take on a boss." And he said he went and took on a boss, and within two turns, he had already lost, like, two two of his party yeah. members. It was, like, two or three turns. He was just like, ah! It's a punch in the face. It's You you really do kind of build this false sense of confidence, and you're like, I can take this. And I'll switch characters, and I'll beef up another character, and I'll do it all over again. And, yeah, you hit a boss. You hit a, you, a new area. And I've actually tried other areas. They let you kind of dip your toes into other stuff. And those first or second fights that you get into, you know right away that like you are in way over your head. It's it's a hard game so far. Yeah, I've had this happen to me in Etrian Odyssey games as oh, well. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Where I'll be just like, yeah, okay, I'm ready for a boss. Oh God, I'm dead. And you get that weird feeling that like you know you've been running through a dungeon for so long, and you're you're especially in the Etrian games where you're kind of you're comfortable fighting all the enemies in an area and they're like, I'm going to take on that FOE over there. And it's going to be, I mean, if I'm taking the rest of these other slack monsters on, this is going to be a joke and you just get swatted right away. And, um, that newer, that, that other area I was talking about in legend of legacy is just like that. But like these kind of faux FOE characters or monsters are, they're everywhere. And, and sometimes like you, because like the the foliage and things around you are popping up as you're walking around, sometimes the view gets obscured and you just run into one accidentally and you're like, well, that's pretty lousy. I got to run from this fight and start all over again. And then you suck it up and say, it's okay. Well, give it another shot, I suppose. Well, we'll have uh, I, I think a more in depth look at Legend of Legacy next week. Uh, I will. I wouldn't mind having Jeremy on the show, but I believe he's going, or he's currently in New York doing a big interview, and then I think he might be going to Portland. So, our, we're, we're all traveling quite a lot, but before we continuing on to the main topic of this podcast, uh, any quick thoughts on the Witcher 3 expansion? Um, you know, the Witcher 3 is such a big game. Um, 
really your taste for an expansion after something like that is completely dependent on did you like what you already played and it's it's not going to be because there's so much to the to the initial game that it's it feels sort of more of the same but like if you were really into that game you're really going to get something out of it but for people that only played like a little bit of Witcher 3 thinking I'm just going to wait for a game of the year edition or something like that and then get into the new content my gut tells me they're probably not going to care as much but what I've played so far has been pretty fun um there's been some I mean not a ton of of brand new crazy wacky things but the the new characters that I've run into so far have been really interesting um there's been a lot of treasure hunt quests for new gear and new um uh schematics to make new stuff and since it's still pretty much taking place in in Velen or wherever the the one the the first big big map is in in Witcher that um you can really easily sort of run around and do a bunch of side work before doing any of the main quest stuff so what I sort of did at least last night for a little bit was I collected schematics for <clears throat> some pretty crazy high level armor that I wasn't at level to do, but after just a, a little bit of kind of wandering around and finding new stuff, I got to that level pretty quickly. So now I'm, I'm a little bit more confident in, in being able to basically just steamroll the actual quest. Not that that's actually going to happen, but that's, you know, what my perverse Witcher play style is kind of has been at least just get as strong as I can and muscle through the story and get stronger again. But, um, so it feels kind of more of the same, but if you really dug the stuff that the Witcher was doing already with like really interesting characters and writing that really takes into account context, which a lot of open world games really don't, um, I think you're going to get a lot out of it, but it's it's pretty big, you know, even though it it still just kind of takes place in the same spots where you've already played. Um, there's a lot of story going on in there and it's a lot of, okay, it feels very sort of fetch questy now, but um, I haven't really run into the point where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm sick of going to do this other thing. I'm sick of going to talk to this person so I can go talk to somebody else. So um, I think Geralt is like the world's strangest, most fascinating stock character. Um, so it's still pretty comfortable me running around talking to folks with, with this grunting dude and which I still think is kind of funny, but so far he's like so good. Batman. He's, he's a, a way more charming Batman and I'm a pretty huge Batman <laughs> fan. He's, he's the, the John shaft of Batman. <laughs> I, um, I downloaded the, expansion yesterday or it was yesterday or the day before after like three false starts okay because i don't know like it just kept asking me to update it was actually really annoying but i finally got it installed and i was not up to level 30 because i didn't finish the game because i didn't review it and so i decided to start do a fresh start from the hearts of stone expansion just like jump straight yeah. into the expansion mm-hmm. The only problem with doing that is you go in and you're like completely disoriented to start because <laughs> you're like, oh, whoa, these ability points. Yeah. Okay. I guess I got to put them into things and I got all these items that I don't necessarily know what to do what with. What do I do with all this shit? 
Uh, I've got so much stuff yeah. and like things have clearly happened and you run into characters immediately that you clearly know from the main game. <laughs> um, but I went into the sewers to chase a monster or something and that's about as far as I got. But the, the, the feelings I got were, wow, yeah, this game looked really good. I forgot like how great the environments looked. And then, God, I'm like, I am really out of sorts. <laughs> I, I sort of regret jumping right into this expansion, but yeah, honestly though, like that you're going to run into a boss fight really soon that, um, I found anyway, was totally different than the, the, any of the other bosses in the game. Like I had to fight it at long range, which is something I was really not comfortable doing. And I'm playing, I played the original game on the second hardest difficulty and I'm, I'm keeping that difficulty with, uh, the expansion. So, Usually what I did was, was kind of like block and counter and go in and, and just kind of meet, grind through dudes. And this boss fight that you're going to run into, you, you totally can't do that. And I'm sure there are people out there on the internet who have already figured out how to do that. And I just wasn't smart enough to get there, but, um, it really kind of forced me to adjust how I played. And I, I really did like that, even though I was baffled and frustrated right at first, but. Um, getting back to your update comment. Yeah. I, I think I updated at like 1.07 or something before, which was months and months and months ago. And then it told me I needed to update to 1.10 and I'm like, okay, well, it's an update. It won't be that big. And like 19 gig in an hour and a half later, I'm like, come on for the love of God. I just want to play with shaft Batman. <laughs> All right. Well, well, I'm sure we'll have more to say about the expansion on the website. But earlier this week, as I already said, we ran a article about Final Fantasy XII's localization on the website. If you can believe it, it's been almost a decade since the original game came out, which was actually pretty terrifying for me <laughs> because yeah. I remember I was blogging for One Up at the time when it came out, and I it was the first game that I bought. Like while I was living in Japan and it hadn't come out in the US yet and I was like pretty excited. It's like, yeah, I already got Final Fantasy twelve. Look at this game. I'm trying to play it in Japanese and this is a huge mistake, but <laughs> I, I'm still playing it. But you had an opportunity to talk to a number of the localization people who are behind it, including a rather well known localization specialist, Alexander O. Smith. Um Tell me a little bit about the process of putting together this article and what kind of sparked your interest in, in it in the first place. Sure. Um, well, I, I mean, I'm obviously a pretty big Final Fantasy XII fan. You don't tackle something like this unless you're really into it. But, um, I remember when it came out and, um, you and I were kind of talking about this a second ago before the podcast started, but like I had played and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this, listening to this had played just a ton of Japanese role-playing games at the time because the um, the PS1 and the PS2 just, it was an embarrassment of riches. There was just so much out there. But um, as time went on, the, the more stuff that kept coming out, I mean, they were interesting to play and they had wacky and funny battle systems and stuff like that. Like, um, I don't know, Magna Carta. I'm trying to think of the stranger stuff off the top of my head. Um, things like that, but like, they just weren't interesting games and, you know, video games have kind of a bad rap that they have bad writing, but 
as time was going on with, and I'm sure I'm going to piss off a lot of people, but like a lot of those Japanese role-playing games, the writing just seems to me to be getting worse. And I was in my mid to late twenties at the time and Final Fantasy 12 had come out and I was really into Final Fantasy 10. I really, really liked it a lot. And I was a super, super pretentious film student in college. And as I was playing it, I'm like, this game was written by like a 14 year old. And then Final Fantasy 10 totally won me over by the end. So I was pretty psyched for Final Fantasy 12 to come out and, um, I played it. And I really didn't like it that much. And I, I went through the whole game because that's just, I am the kind of dude apparently that does that. And I just kept banging my head against the wall and I eventually finished it. And it sort of stuck with me. And about a year later, I went back to it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this thing another shot, a fair, sh- maybe a fairer shake this time. But what really kind of stayed with me was the fact that it was a very straightforward story. I mean, it's like, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. And there's, there's some serious variation to that, but, um, adults spoke and acted like adults. Kids spoke and acted like kids. It wasn't a bunch of kind of typical anime tropes. It was, um, a very, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, mature way of, of handling high fantasy. And it was Final Fantasy going back to being high fantasy, which is something that it still hasn't really done, or it hasn't done at all in the main, the mainline games, like, like other than the Final Fantasy 14, I guess. But, um, so when I went back and played it a second time, I'm like, wow, this, the voice acting in this game is really, really good. And the, this, dialogue is super dense and it's really interesting and everyone talks in these kind of kooky languages that girl sounds like bjork and i'm i'm a bjork fan and that pushes my buttons i suppose so um so i guess final fantasy 12 is a game that i sort of learned to love warts and all over time and i've i love it that much more the older i get and so um the impetus i suppose for the article was um the good thing about writing for, for sites like you guys is that, um, when you've got a really interesting story to tell, you can sort of follow your muse in that respect. So it's, what are you really into? Can you write an interesting story about this? And that was sort of where I went with, okay, I'm really into Final Fantasy 12. I'm really into these, these other games, but, um, what about Final Fantasy 12? Do people really want to hear at this point? Well, I mean, the big thing is that it had a very troubled um, cycle. It had a very troubled development cycle. There's no way in hell that anybody's going to speak to that. I mean, no one from Square Enix has an NDA that's that's probably going to be up by the time their grandchildren are alive. Um, but what I liked about the game, what made me come back the first time, is how interesting the characters spoke and how good the the dialogue was, even though sometimes it wasn't very comprehensible. So... Um, I kind of thought, why don't I get all these actors together and why don't I get the translators together and see if I can have some sort of like large oral history of, of taking this game and turning it into what effectively sounded like a very large stage play. And so I started with, um, Alexander O. Smith, who is totally the linchpin in all this stuff. And he was a, he was great. He was very amiable. He was very quick to respond to all of my, my questions, my, my texts and things, or the the emails that I sent him. And we'll get back to this in a second, but, 
Um, I found a way to contact him and he got back to me in like an hour and a half. And he's like, I am absolutely interested in doing this story. Um, if you want to interview me, why don't you, why don't you contact Joe reader too, who was the co translator, co localizer on this. And if you're really interested, I can probably contact Jack Fletcher, who is the voice director of the game. And I, I, you, you don't say no to something like that. I mean, that's basically everything right on a silver platter for you and something like this. So I, um, this was about two, three months ago. I reached out to, to him and I put together this, this really long interview. That's probably one of the longest email interviews I've ever sent out. And he, and he got back to me right away and said, okay, these are great questions. These are going to take, take some time. Why don't you send me some separate questions for Jack Fletcher? <coughs> Excuse me. And I'll interview him for you um, and save you the trouble of tracking him down, doing a Skype interview or whatever. And I, okay, man, if, if that's the way you want to do it. So I sent a separate list of questions to him. And at that point, I, I'm like, okay, well, you know, the, the, the big second part of this is to try to get all the actors involved, see if I can get all the principals together to have their say and see if there's any kind of weird stories that come out of the, uh, the recording process and the casting process and the auditions and stuff like that. And let me tell you something about actors, Cat Bailey. They are not the easiest pe people to, to get a hold of. Super nice people. I gotta be honest, but, um, I went through, <laughs> uh, agencies, um, PR people. I went through, I tried to track down personal email addresses. I contacted a few of them on Facebook pages. Um, there was a couple like last resort. I, uh, I went to their, their Twitter page and it was like just out of the blue. Hey, I'm doing the story. If you want to get involved, other actors are involved, email me back. And some of them got back to me. Some of them flaked out. Some of most of them just didn't get giving the time of day at all. And one of them, the guy who played Vaughn, his name is Bobby Edner. I think he just, I, he's like a ghost. I didn't, I couldn't find him whatsoever. Um, but Gideon Emery. Well, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a strategy and you just gotta say, <laughs> uh, I've got work for you. Gotcha. Oh, sorry. Um, that work was an interview <laughs> because journalists, we don't get fed very often, so you say open bar, bam, we're there. So I'll drink your beer and eat pigs in a blanket. So something got to play this NIS game now. Journalism pro tip for getting actors to do an interview <laughs> right. for you. <laughs> Write that down, kids. Um, so Gideon Emery and Elijah Alexander, Elijah Alexander, who played Vane Solidor, were the only two that really got back to me and were, were willing to to at least answer the emails and, and give me some answers. And um, Gideon Emery himself was, was kind of a nice little coup because that was like one of the roles that sort of made his career. And that's one of probably the more memorable characters in the game. And um, Elijah Alexander was, was super cool and very fast about getting, getting his responses to me too. I mean, he didn't really give me such, he, I didn't send him a very long interview, but he, he was like, anything you need, give me, you know, ask me whatever you want. Um, so the whole thing took about two months total to compile because I had a lot of follow-up questions to Alexander Smith and he kind of acted as the, 
the ambassador to the, the whole process. And um, he and Jill Reader answered all of my initial questions, but didn't, this is pretty evident in the article, but didn't really delineate who answered what. It was just kind of like, here's what we said. Um, there's a couple of answers that it's obvious that one of them said something over somebody else. And I can't remember an example off the top of my head, but all of the follow-up questions were, were basically straight to Alex and he, he got back to me and he, and it was, it was all like stuff that I really wanted to know. Like, did you ever get, um, asked to translate the international Zodiac edition? Do you have any pictures of the set? Do you have any, um, I mean, this was stuff that, <coughs> excuse me, that I was ask, asking after the fact because I, I felt for some reason I felt I needed to like warm up to him a little bit to ask him the, some of the really more complex or difficult questions. But he, he answered everything really, really fast and, um, very clear cut, really, really nice guy. I, the whole thing wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for Alexander O. Smith. So. What did you learn kind of about the process of making Final Fantasy XII that you didn't really know before? Well, um, I mean, a lot of kind of like trivia tidbit stuff I didn't really know already, like um, how Square Enix was not really down for having the Vieira characters speak in an Icelandic um, dialect, so they would actually sound like Bjork, and that was... Like I, I had initially read something like that originally, but I didn't quite believe it. And then, you know, once it comes from the translator's mouth or virtual pen or whatever, you believe it at that point. But, um, yeah, Square Enix was, was like, do you, you really want to have characters that, that speak in this kind of like odd alien accent? And, and they were like, yeah, this is, this, these are the reasons why we need to make them sort of otherworldly. They're sort of the, um, the magic guide character in, in after a fashion. And they were, they seemed fine with it. As far as Alexander Smith told me, they were, once they kind of explained the intention and what the plan was, uh, square, the square staff was, was totally in favor of it. Um, and then other little stuff like, um, how difficult it was to, <clears throat> kind of make these different dialects and to kind of like spice up some of this dialogue because the original Japanese version, at least I'm getting, I got the impression from them was still kind of a, I mean, I'm sure it was probably written with that sort of, um, <laughs> base Yasumi Matsuno style or, or it's very no nonsense, but even, even with the brief moments of levity in the game, but even spicing up some of the other dialogue where it's, where it's a little less kind of like tone flat that, that, some of the other Matsuno stuff can tend to be. Um, and I'm, I'm saying this specifically like uh, Ogre, Tactics Ogre, <clears throat> and even Vagrant Story, which are games that I, I like an awful lot, but like they can get kind of dry sounding. Um, one of the, the real talents that Alexander Smith has is how he kind of spices that stuff up and how he, he turned a lot of the flavor text into interesting things to read and interesting characters to have conversations with um both jack fletcher and alexander smith just gushed over uh character actor john dimaggio who you have heard all over the place i mean he's been he's on futurama he was bender he's been he's had other video game work i mean you if you've listened to any recorded dialogue in your life you've probably heard john dimaggio speak but just saying stuff like, oh, he would come into the studio and improvise on tape and just the, the, 
he had such a minor character that only shows up in the first like two hours of the game, but like just the spin that he would put on it and the different um, dialects that he was trying out and the different ways that he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. It was, that was, we wish that we would have casted him on other stuff. And um, John DiMaggio, who is Bender on Futurama. Right. Right. Um, And I guess I'd mentioned this in the, the interview too. Um, they have a lot of unused voice recordings of John DiMaggio kind of playing around with his voice. He was also, um, Waka in Final Fantasy X. Um, so if you, if you listen to, <laughs> if you want to like set Bender, Waka, and, um, the character he played in Final Fantasy XII, um, now oh, he's Pinello's boss. Now I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, uh anyway if you like side by side those are like three wildly different voices with wildly different accents and um i guess they have a lot of unused recordings of him lying around that they'd like to play live at some point so if any of you guys wind up going to pax or something and alexander smith and joe reader are doing a panel you should go check it out because they that seems to be some some place where they would like to do it not that i'm guaranteeing it's going to happen anytime soon but um there were i guess switching gears a little bit there i had heard and read on like the wikipedia page at one point that there was a lot of british stage actors who had done some voice work and stuff too and that only seemed to be sort of half true where the a lot of the um judge characters were English stage actors and the, uh, the people that played the Okuria that we sure that the sort of, you know, higher godlike beings that are really pulling the strings for the whole game. Um, those, those were some, some sort of behind the scenes actors that no one had ever seen before. And, um, a lot of them did them, especially the woman who played judge Drace, who sort of defends, <clears throat> Um, Larsa in the capital, like halfway through the game and gets killed for it or something like that. She's the good judge or whatever. Um, they, they did the recording without doing the lip flaps. They were just like, okay, here's the script. We're going to record this like a radio play, basically. Just, you know, put a hundred, a thousand percent into it and we'll, we'll, we'll go back and we'll see how it lines up with the ADR. And I guess it worked out pretty well. Like they didn't, even, they didn't have to go back and do that. They just read their script so well that they could just pull something like that off with like just one, two, three, which is pretty impressive considering they, I mean, this is a time when Square had a lot of money, but there, this still wasn't quite a point where when you're translating a video game from Japanese to English and there's a lot of spoken dialogue and you see mouths moving a lot of time especially then is not <clears throat> not given to reprogramming how the mouths moved so it was part of the challenge for recording the voice acting was just sort of and writing the voice the the character's dialogue was to sort of line up what they're going to say with how the japanese lip flaps were already in the game and i guess these judges just they just did it walked out like cowboys i'm like okay next business for people who aren't familiar with the concept of lip flaps, by the way, that's the process of syncing the way the the talk, the speech with the with the actual animation of the mouth moving. That I'm right, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not leading people astray with my definition <laughs> of lip flaps. 
No, uh, the things that I found kind of interesting, uh, there's a little passage early on about how in the Japanese script, uh, the concept of chocobos are explained to Vaughn and the, uh, the, the script writer, the localization team were like, well, I mean, Vaughn's going to understand what a chocobo actually is. So they, right. he lives in this world. He's probably seen one before. He's a streetwise orphan. Right. He certainly knows what an, a chocobo is. So in the English version, they have the, the vendor kind of lamenting that some guy rode off on one of his chocobos the other day without paying. So you get the same information as the Japanese version, but in a way that, I mean, is more organic and natural. And I found it interesting that they had that kind of leeway in general to be able to make those kinds of changes to the script. Uh, especially given that Japanese developers aren't usually that flexible. At least it doesn't seem. It seems like Square Enix was willing to roll with a lot of different changes in the script. Yeah, a lot of, you know, I really got the impression <clears throat> that Square Enix staff was really trusting of what they were doing. And um I asked them if there were any kind of like strange battles that they had to that they had to take on with the Square Enix staff um, over doing stuff like that and, and voice recording. And um, Alexander Smith said, not really the, the casting of Nicole Fantel as, um, as Fran and making the Vera speak Icelandic in an Icelandic dialect was the only thing that we, we kind of had to go back and forth a little bit on, but yeah, stuff like that. I mean, that's, I really think that's the strength of not only good localization, but like clever writing. It's not like localizers or people just sitting there translating from one language to another verbatim. I mean, they have to kind of not only get the spirit of and, and the intent of what the original language was, but to sort of spin it in a new and interesting way that doesn't read like it's it's just a dry textbook translation of something. And that's what makes Alexander Smith and Joe Reeder not only good at their jobs, but kind of famous for that. What a shame that Final Fantasy XII, uh, well, it was kind of an anomaly, right? And it wasn't really a true return to high fantasy, as you said it. It was, yeah, it stands totally. out like a, it really stands out in comparison to the rest of the series. And yeah. That, um, that probably explains I, I, why it has its fans, but also a lot of people are like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, no, there are some Final Fantasy twelve haters out there. And like from being <laughs> one of them for like the year after it came out, I, 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 I don't agree with them, but I, I see where they're coming from. Well, it was pretty hip up to hate on it in the year or so oh, man. leading yeah. up to it. There's that. Penny Arcade comic where they like applied <laughs> Final Fantasy XII's mechanics to Mario and it's completely unfair <laughs> to be perfectly honest but that was the the perception of oh this crappy game is going to play itself what the heck are we even playing this game for well if you if you take a step back and depending on how much you believe of how bad the development went of this game um it should have been a total train wreck. Like how many cooks were in that kitchen kind of getting this thing out the door when all was said and done, it had been in development for like five or six years, which <clears throat> not only at the time in, in role-playing games, but even for Square Enix, that was a long time back in the day. And um, like 
Do you kind of want to get into this? Do we want to talk about the development history a little bit? I mean, it seems kind of inevitable with Final Fantasy yeah. twelve. I mean, <laughs> all right. it's, it's... I have an interesting story to back this up, too, like oh, once okay. this is all over. But, um, so, all right, um, Final Fantasy twelve was originally going to, to come out um, helmed by Yasumi Matsuno, who made his name with a company called Quest doing games called Tactics Ogre and Ogre Battle, which I'm sure many of the listeners already know pretty well. And um, Quest was acquired by Square Enix, and um, Matsuno was asked to basically take hold of the Final Fantasy franchise and make essentially Tactics Ogre as a Final Fantasy game or Final Fantasy as a Tactics Ogre game or whatever. So we got Final Fantasy Tactics, which is, in my opinion, a superb video game. Um, and he took a little bit of a break from there and made Vagrant Story, which is a fairly superb video game. It's another game I think I'd like. Controversial. Yes, controversial, but also with a, a spectacular translation. That's, um, that was Alexander O. Smith's actually, that was his first big, big job at, uh, at Square. And he, I don't really want to say that he polished a turd, but he took a um, a very dry Japanese text and he made it this kind of faux Shakespearean masterpiece, really. And someday, if I ever get a chance to talk to him again, I would I'll go through a whole interview with him about the translation of Vagrant Story. But um, and I would read any- that I would read that translation right. <laughs> or that that interview. <laughs> See you next year, everybody. Um, so. Anyway, um, so they they got Matsuno to <clears throat> make the next mainline Final Fantasy game after Final Fantasy, the the, the next console single player one, because Final Fantasy XI was of course a, an MMO, and um, I'm gonna say not a great MMO. I played a little bit of it, and I know it's got its fans, but man, it, it is not for me. But um, have you ever played that Final Fantasy XI? Yeah, uh, I know that James Milky was a gigantic fan of Final Fantasy XI. Um, when I was living in Japan, um, I talked to some MMORPG maniacs who considered Final Fantasy XI the best MMORPG ever made. Whoa. Um, it really appealed to a very, very hardcore mindset. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was that we were talking about Final Fantasy XI yesterday at that uh, Exceed event because Ken Berry, who's the executive vice president over there, was actually kind of spearheading it over here because he was at Square at the time. Oh, really? Yep. And he talked about how it was kind of rough early on uh, just because, I mean, you needed like the hard drive attachment for the PlayStation 2 <laughs> yeah, and right. there were like the world passes thing and everything going on. But Final Fantasy Eleven ended up just... I mean, it was a consistent moneymaker for Square for years and years. Yeah, right. That's what kept the lights on from those those lean PlayStation 3 days, man. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember I was working in retail at the time uh, that Final Fantasy XI came out for PS2. And I just remember just staring at the box of this thing because it was this giant, white, clean, beautiful, like, I mean, it was a white box, but for me, it was just like a piece of art. I'm like, I, I want to take this home so badly and break this thing in half. But um, yeah, I finally got a chance to play it down the road. And I just, I'd like to give it another shot if I ever found the time, but I just wasn't into it. I couldn't do it. Still mad that it's numbered. Yeah, I, 
it's so stupid that I'm mad about that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, ah, Final Fantasy XI, it's, it's numbered. Why would you number that? But, yeah, I'm kind of, if I'm being honest, I'm in that camp too. Like when I think numbered Final Fantasy games, I think like me in front of a television and no one else involved, basically. I mean, you're so you were talking about those lean PS3 years. I mean, Final Fantasy twelve is at least partly to blame for that. Yeah, you can. I mean, it was in development for so long. I'm sure yeah. they probably. I mean, it sold well. It got a greatest hits re-release at least in mm-hmm. in the U.S. But it well, it couldn't have made all of that money back. I mean, they must have spent a ton on that. Its problem was that Final Fantasy was kind of like. It was an assembly line for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they cranked out Final Fantasy 8 and 9 and 10 within like a four-year period or something like that. Five-year period because Final Fantasy 7 came out in 1997 and Final Fantasy 10 came out in 2002. And I remember when Final Fantasy 9 came out and I was just like, wow, man, these games keep on coming out. But it's fine because they're great. And like, they're good, yeah. Uh, like they clearly had a process. And I think Final Fantasy 6 was was aiming for 2004. Uh, which would have, so it would have been one last PS2 game. And then I think Square wanted to put Final Fantasy 13 on the PS2 as yeah. well. Yeah, and there's then some um, video on the internet of them, like the, the alpha tests of Final Fantasy 13 on PS2. And then they could have like jumped into the PS3 era and just kept right on rolling. But then there was the lot, there were all the delays with Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. 12 and then we had we got into the ps3 and final fantasy 13 kept getting bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier and oh god like the actual production of final fantasy 13 like you could argue now that's a like a messed up production going on right there well that that that's the difference though like final fantasy final fantasy 13 is a game i i do not like whatsoever and Mm. like the the main difference i think between final fantasy 12 and 13 is that it took a lot of people to kind of salvage both ships but like one game i i think was a a more cohesive something whereas another game was was obviously not cohesive whatsoever it was like okay we need we need to get this thing out the door we need to start selling copies of this because things are getting kind of rough around here so final fantasy 13 was a pile of assets and want of a purpose oh man totally bubblegum and spit just holding everything together um and i say that as somebody who actually really enjoyed lightning returns but i like lightning returns and in in a oddly perverse way i suppose i liked final fantasy 13 too if i just kind of skipped all of the dialogue i didn't care for 13 too but i i didn't love it but like you know i i think i think it was christian nut that at one point in, had been on one of these podcasts with you guys and he was like any port in a storm and at that point i was like okay final fantasy 13 too i didn't love your predecessor but i haven't played a really good role-playing game in a long time so we'll give you a shot but anyway back to final fantasy 12 um you know i think the difference between 13 and 12 for me is that one of them I would actually replay. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I would You go... would replay 13? No, I'd replay 12. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you were going the other direction. No, that. no, no. Oh, I would Jesus Christ. I would go back to 12. Um, if anything, I want to see how I feel about it now because the first time I played it was like 2009. And yeah. Okay. I don't know. I was just a very I had a very different outlook on RPGs at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that I wasn't as experienced with RPGs at that time. So 
I, I, my initial reaction was to not like it because I was like, uh, I mean, this is interesting and all, but I, I think it really like falls apart in the second half and, um, it's not as developed as I would have liked, but okay. that's how I felt in 2009, right? So I'm kind of curious to, to know how I would feel about it now. Whereas 23rd, uh, whereas Final Fantasy 13, like, uh, I played through the entirety of that game and it made very little impression on me at the end of the day. I, I remember finishing that. <clears throat> it had was... Space Pope. Oh, space Pope, yes. <laughs> Evil Space Pope. Yes. Oh, that guy was the worst Final Fantasy villain, I think, of all time. And there have been, to be fair, some pretty lousy Final Fantasy villains before that. Like, I like Final Fantasy V five a lot but x death is kind of oh come on x death was great um okay i'll I'll, you you keep believing he was a tree um, he was oh he was totally the evil tree he was evil tree it's fine we're gonna cut the bark right off of him the point the important thing about final fantasy 5 was like the engine it was the job system and the mechanics like the 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 actual the actual game was incidental (laughs) yeah totally this is here's a playground figure it out but i mean that's what's cool about 12 too like you you like final fantasy 8 a lot right yes i do so in final fantasy 8 and that is a game you can break over your knee basically Mm -hmm. right right from the beginning Mm -hmm. and final fantasy 12 play it right and you can power level from the first like from the first hour and a half of the game maybe like von once you can get von solo to the damasca ester sand westers wester sand i think um and set things up accordingly, you can basically steamroll a game from right there. And there's, there's a lot of guides on the internet to kind of walk you through this. And it's the same thing. Like if you, I'm, I'm personally not great with these systems, but I love the fact that they exist. So other people can go out there and just say, okay, this is a fun and interesting way that we totally destroyed this game and that you can bend it to your will. And, uh, that's one of the cool things I like about Final Fantasy XII is that it's open. It's not totally open, but it's open enough that if you're willing to kind of get out there and explore and, and willing to kind of mess around with the combat a little bit, you can just crack it in half. And um, like there are runs on the internet, like if you skip through all the dialogue and the the cutscenes and stuff like that, that you can um, basically destroy the game at level ninety nine in probably less than 20 hours maybe that's a a little bit of an exaggeration but it's 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 fun to screw around with that game if you get some time you should you should check some of this stuff out man now you're bringing me back to when i used to do that to final fantasy 8 final fantasy 7 god i love doing that Final Uh, Fantasy good times but yeah so when it comes to final fantasy 12 um i suppose did it we didn't finish we didn't we didn't finish the troubled history. Um well do you want to finish the troubled history? We we can. We can skip it if you want. I think people kind of get it maybe at this point. I think that its troubled history is pretty well documented, to be honest. But it's really not. Like that's and that was kind of my stealth way of getting into this <laughs> this interview with, with Alex Smith, because like like the real one of the real impetus for this story too was like I I want to know I did did Matsuno leave of his own free will was he fired were they actually fights with him and square over who the main character should be 
Like there is stuff out there saying this and implying this, but no one really knows for sure. So, um, so yeah, the original director Yasumi Matsuno had left the game like halfway through development, and then it went to Akitoshi Kawazu of Saga fame and Hiroshi Minagawa, who is um, he was the art director for a lot of other Matsuno games, and he directed. Uh, I think he actually, I think directed Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, or was he, he, I mean, he had pulled his weight and other stuff. So they, they basically took the game over and, um, so I wanted to know if there was any truth to any of that stuff. And that's, and I kind of (laughs) got once again, once I warmed up Alex Smith a little bit, like once I had had him go through this giant interview, I started launching into those last questions kind of at the end, like, okay. Do do you know any of this stuff? Have you heard any of these things? Like, have do you know if any I mean, this came out in a post Final Fantasy ten two world where Square was making sequels to these games and they had already put that cart in front of the horse and was planning to do it again? Did they leave any of that stuff in there? Was Matano's plans in there? And he was, I mean, he could just be playing coy for all I know. He was like, you know, I don't really know. We don't really pay attention to rumors and stuff like that, um, but. I'll tell you what, why don't I contact Yasumi Matsuno for you and see if he would be, if, if he would answer any of this stuff. And when he sent me that email, I seriously like just about poop my pants and I I'm like, Oh my God, this is going to turn into my like Sistine Chapel, this story. So I was like starting to look around the internet to find ways to contact like Akihiko Yoshida, the, the artist and some of the other guys to see if anybody else was going to talk about this. But, um, Alex Smith emails me a day later and was like, yeah, I pinged him on Skype and said, there's, there's this guy in the U S that's writing the story about Final Fantasy 12. Do you, do you wish to come in on any of this stuff? And he just didn't answer me. So I don't think it's going to work out. And I'm like, oh, shocking. Yeah, so, so, oh, well. Yeah. But, um, so that's Final Fantasy twelve. It and that's kind of what I was getting at, I don't know, like twenty minutes ago. Is that like <laughs> what started out as a sort of centralized vision from this one guy kind of had a lot of other cooks in the kitchen by the end of it and it wound up still being a pretty damn good video game. Hopefully we'll get a Final Fantasy twelve HD at some point. What are you waiting for, Square? No kidding. Or release it on PC for God's sake. Yeah, actually I think that game would do pretty well on PC, but what do I know? I think Final Fantasy XII's problem is that it came out, I don't know, kind of a, a nebulous period because it came out in 2006, right when the PS3 was launching, so it got overshadowed by a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like a lot of people didn't get a chance to really get invested in it. Um, and people say that about 9, too, and I can I can kind of agree with... Yeah. Both of those. Well, nine was weird too because it came out at a certain period of time where it, I mean, it came out in 2000. So the year PS2 came out in the US, I think. Um, and it, and not only did it come out at that kind of period where it was overshadowed by the PS2, it was really focused in on classic Final Fantasy. Yeah. And so many people had come in on Final Fantasy VII. So they played eight and they were like, okay, eight was a thing. Um, 
I wanted more seven, but okay. And then nine came out and it was really like a lot like Final Fantasy four and five and six, like the in classic original Final Fantasy, like it was so much of that of it was around that. And a lot of people who played Final Fantasy seven first had not played the original Final Fantasy. So stuff like Rally Ho, like just did not mean anything to them. So yeah. references that they just weren't going to get, but. But now Final no. Fantasy IX certainly has a very strong cult following. Yes, yes, it does. Um, about maybe three-ish years ago, I took a summer and went went through all all three of, of the PlayStation and one era Final Fantasies because for a long time I was actually kind of a Final Fantasy VII hater too. Like I, I played it right when it came out and I, I just didn't like it that much and it took me forever to finish it because it felt like a death march and i really just did, didn't like the game at all and so a couple of years and and i went through eight way way after the fact and i went through nine way after the fact too like long after they came out and i was playing other stuff too but actually i think now that i'm we're talking about it, it probably took final fantasy 10 for me to sort of go back to those games anyway but a couple of years ago i played through them all back to back to back over one summer and they all held up pretty well. And I'm, I mean, they're, especially Final Fantasy VII. I mean, you guys have certainly spoke about this in the past, but it's not ex- especially a complex video game um, by today's RPG standards, at least. But, um, and they're all kind of fugly other than nine, but they're still competent. They're still fun to play. They're still, um, I mean, they, they get a little morose, but hey, that's, that's part of the fun. I suppose but no i was pretty pleased with with how all three of them still kind of feel like good games that i could play as kind of comfort food whenever i i really want to just play something kind of classic yeah for sure so kind of circling back to our original conversation how important do you think a good localization is to a jrpg okay that should be self-explanatory. <laughs> Very important. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, what do you think are the best localizations? I'm sorry. The what best. is the best? Um, I well, certainly anything that Alexander O. Smith has really got a chance to sink his teeth into. So, Vagrant mm. Story, I think Final Fantasy twelve, definitely. Um, I think Persona three and four really um, nail kind of high school characters very well. And I can't imagine the difficulty it would have been to kind of like translate Japanese high school kids to being adaptable to an American high school kid. And not that it's like a one-to-one comparison because like the Japanese isms and things are, are still definitely in that script, but to still sort of make them relatable and, and make them interesting characters that, um, don't seem so exotic, I suppose. It they feel like Japanese, still... but they feel Japanese, but they also are relatable, which yeah, is a, totally. a really nifty trick. And it was actually a pretty bold thing to keep the, the honorifics. Mm -hmm. So the sans and the senpais and everything, because I mean, that, that could have come off as really clunky or just really bad in general, or Or people would have been like, yeah, or really pretentious and it works, which is amazing. So, and plus by doing that, they, gave themselves a lot more work because you have to keep that stuff consistent through the entire the entirety of the script like you can't you can't like leave off of it or you can't change the honorifics like you have so god that must have been so much work yeah 
and I think they're both really good. Um, By the way, I praise uh, Persona's localization, um, but in full disclosure, I'm friends with one of the localizers, uh, Nick Marigos from Atlas. But so, I mean, I really enjoy the localization separate from my friendship, but I do know the person who was involved with it. So we appreciate your honesty. Yes. Uh, well, ethics and game journalism and all yes. that or whatever, but it gives us strength. Yes, indeed. But yeah, I know persona and final fantasy are kind of the go-to, uh, examples. What, what are your feelings on the dragon quest localizations? I, for the most part, I like them a lot. I'm not mm-hmm. really a huge, huge dragon quest fan, to be honest with you. What? But, um, <laughs> what? I know, burn me at the stake, but I. Jeez, John, they have a lot of whimsy, which is something that, like, as I get older, I'm I'm way more appreciative of, and um, especially Dragon Quest Eight, mm. like very distinct characters, really good, good casting, interesting accents, good fun writing, even though even though the protagonist was totally mute. Um, that yeah, the, I love the translations in those games they they work really really well um i think some of the the recent best localizations have certainly been the from software stuff which even though there's i mean we can fight all we want of whether or not there are rpgs or whatever but um for games that don't tell explicit stories and you have to dig through kind of found text and things like that in item descriptions if it wasn't for solid localizations, not only would it not make sense, but it would seem really stupid. And like the same thing, um, kind of on, on the other end of the spectrum of what we were talking about with Dragon Quest, like the casting and the voice acting of those games is really eerie and really creepy. And, um, even characters that you're supposed to sort of get along with, like the Crestfallen Knight in um in demon souls like one of the first characters you meet in the nexus like it sounds like this guy is going to kill me in my sleep like it's he's so weird and the i mean i'm a huge huge like probably two-thirds of the internet demon souls dark souls dark souls 2 all that stuff but those translations are really they're really something else secret best localization pokemon diamond and pearl Because I think it was localized from a guy who, I, I don't know, like, he was active on Something Awful, I think. So he brought a lot of oh, in-jokes really? from that community in there. I had no idea. That's really cool. So it was the the the, the script, if I recall correctly, uh, didn't take itself too seriously and had a lot of fun with a lot of the concepts. So it was just a fun game to play. And it kind of disappointed me that uh, Pokemon Black and White was a little more staid compared mm. to Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. But I think that the thing that really matters with a good localization is just to give the game an identity. Yeah, um, that's, that's probably the best way to put it. Give the game an identity, give the characters um, something that makes them stand out. Um one of the points that is made in your piece about Final Fantasy XII's localization was that in the original, the original Japanese script, like the characters all had kind of the same accent, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And it right. was a decision on the part of Alexander O. Smith and all of those people 
to give them like really distinct accents because like that was a big part of the story. And it's decisions like that that can really like go from competent translation to great localization that really legitimately adds something to the actual story. Yeah, that I think that kind of hits it on the head too with what you just said. It, it adds something to the story because like, um, this is going to sound kind of weird, but like imagine recording a cover album of any famous record ever, like Let It Be or whatever, or I don't, Taylor Swift's 1989, that's pretty topical, but um, a covers album or a tribute album always seems to be trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist where like they're trying to either make songs better than they originally were, or at least trying to live up to that where most that try to do that, like the Ryan Adams version, I think way off topic, but just doesn't quite get it. And I think a good localization, a good game localization um, tries to sort of not jump over what had originally come out and what, what was in the Japanese version, but to find a way to subtly enhance those things or not just give a different audience something new and wacky to talk about, but to, to really add some identity to the game and like giving Andor a Sri Lankan accent, which is something I had never really put together myself is, is just a weird, subtle way of doing that. And Final Fantasy XII and, and the Persona games especially, they they find great ways to do that. Yeah, I think another good example is Fire Emblem Awakening. And I say this, um, I consider uh, 8-4, who handled the localization, I consider them friends as well. Um, uh, because, you know, they host 8-4 Play and uh, Mark McDonald and John Riccardi used to work at 1-Up, etc. So ex-journalists, it's all very incestuous, but... Um, giant ring. It's a giant ring, but they, but I, I think I, I'm comfortable saying that Fire Emblem Awakening certainly had a memorable localization that, like, they wrote the characters and they add a lot of personality to the characters. And I, I think, um, it could be a little over the top at times, but it, it seemed to have won the game a lot of fans. Where people are like, oh yeah, I love this character, I love that character, like these kind of broad character beats, yeah, help kind of make them stand out in your mind. Um, and it's something that Persona is also really adept at. I, I think, I think at a base level, though, you just want to make sure that you have a competent translation because <laughs> that people know where to where to go and what to do. At the end of the day, Final Fantasy VII, like, did very well for itself. Yeah, we got <laughs> it. We we knew we had to kill Sephiroth at the end of the game, and that was that. But holy moly, was that a bad localization? Yeah, holy cats. Uh, that, was, that was also at like a, um, like right at the end point where Square Enix started to sort of turn that stuff around with um. With Vagrant Story, with Final Fantasy Nine, Final Fantasy VIII's translation, I think, is okay. Well, eight um, was a noticeable jump in quality. Oh yeah, from yeah. Final Fantasy Seven. That's when they introduced the Faraga and stuff like that. And like at the time, it annoyed me because I was like, Faraga, what a, whatever happened to Fire Three? <laughs> but numbers make sense. Come numbers, on. but it was in retrospect a much more natural way to go about it so kudos to them and then final fantasy 9 of course was a phenomenal localization yeah it was hilarious i mean they did such a great job of conveying the humor of that game and i, I think the writing is the single 
best part of that game along with the art, which makes it kind of sad that the rest of the game doesn't hold up super well. Yeah, you know, I'm, I really like Final Fantasy IX, but I think it's way too long. I think that game could have been at least a third shorter. Even, I know it's got its fans and I know you and I are about to be punched in the face over the internet for saying this stuff, but. Oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm used to having, I'm used to having unpopular opinions. (laughs) I, I will say. Japanese RPGs. I did literally, I did literally everything in Final Fantasy IX. Like. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I beat Ozma and I, like I finished the the game, like I collected all of the cards in the game, and okay, the only thing I didn't do was get the the super powered version of the Excalibur. Okay, where that involved like starting a whole new game and everything, so I did not do that. Yeah, but everything else I did. I you know oof, I can't remember the last. I mean, other than maybe Demon Souls and Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2. Like, the last game, I, I kind of 100%ed it in that way. And the last game you platinumed in pl- the Platinum? Uh, I could probably... Bloodborne was the last game I platinumed. You yeah. platinumed Blood- Bloodborne? I mean, that Dude, came out this year. Let me tell you, those Chalice Dungeons are not what they're cracked up to be. Um, <laughs> but the... I have not platinumed a game since starting as a game journalist... Just because I don't have time. Yeah, right. Like, what time do you have to do something like that? And honestly, every every time a platinum, in the few times that I have gotten platinums, the every time they've popped up, I've been, oh my god, finally! And then like this sinking feeling of, what have I been doing with? What myself? have I done? What is wrong with me? Um, and but I've played Final Fantasy twelve, not to completion, but a lot, and I've. I've done an awful lot in that game, but in no way have I ever sat down and said, okay, I'm going to take on Yasmat, the super boss, or even the Hellworm. And like, I've seen videos of people like killing it, killing these things in like an hour, but I, I just don't got it in me. And one day, like, I keep telling myself eventually I'm going to do that, but ugh, man, I can't pull myself through. Well, I, once upon a time, I was the uh, the person who had enough time to sit around and and beat uh, Omega Weapon in Final Fantasy VIII. Um, though I didn't beat it without the help of the the Holy Wars. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I I refined the cars, got the item that made my party invincible, and then went at it. Um, in my mind, that's probably the only way to pull it off. No, but... no. If you do it with Renoa's dog, like uh-huh. Renoa's dog has an ability that. I think it's RNG, <laughs> but yeah, if you, yeah. but you can it's do like it. A shadow in Final Fantasy VI. But you can do it, which to those people Ugh. who have pulled that off, like I bow to Hands them. Off to you. Like that's amazing. <laughs> All right, so final thoughts. Final thoughts uh, from you, John. Uh, final Fantasy XII is a great game yes. with a really good translation, and I'm really, really grateful for the actors and. Um, Alex Smith and Joe Reeder and Jack Fletcher who who helped me out with this. Like they they did I I just asked the questions. They did the heavy lifting and I'm very grateful for that. And um I, I guess if we all pray to our little Square Enix idols, we can hopefully get an HD release at some point, but who knows. You hear that? Go pray to your Square Enix idol. Well, did you you heard about Square Enix saying something about if you want us to translate stuff, we might start Kickstarters for that. Oh yeah, so. yeah, I did hear about that. Um, in which case, well, what's the what's the big thing that we could need localized from Square Enix? 
I would like an official localization of like Bahamut Lagoon and some Ooh. of the older stuff. Um, there you go, kids. That's an oldie. Um, there you go. Seiken Densetsu 3, but honestly, the International Zodiac Job Edition, Final Fantasy 12. I've never played it. I've never brought myself to emulating it. I'd like to try it, even though I think it's, I like the game the way it is now, but I'd still like to, like to do it. I, had bought a Japanese version just to sort of have because I loved that game so much and it's just staring me in the face and I'll never play it, you know? Well, it would be nice if Final Fantasy XII got an HD update, not only so you could get the International Zodiac release over here, but um, just so that people can play it <laughs> and be yeah. aware of it. But, I mean... I think, and, like, just like what you were saying, like, I don't think people were really ready for a Final Fantasy game to be that way at that time. So maybe give that audience another chance to kind of give it another look and or a fairer shake or whatever. Um, I, I still think that that's a game that you release on PC. Just because... Yeah, I agree. I think that it can get a new life on Steam, especially now. Man, if Valkyria Chronicles can pull it off, a Final Fantasy game can do it. Indeed. Well, you should go check out John's interview with the localization team of Final Fantasy XII or Run US Gamer. I will link it in the show notes. Um, really interesting insight into the process of localization and a nice bit of retro history that I was very happy to run. So thanks so much for that, John. And where can we find you around the internet? Uh, I am... Occasionally on usgamer.net. Um, I am on Twitter at John underscore learned, and you will be let down by that because I rarely tweet unless it's about near two, which is something I'm still totally baffled about. That's um, fine. That The 76 or 7,800 people or whatever who have followed me have discovered to their horror that I mostly tweet about sports games so or sports. Ain't, ain't nothing wrong. How's your fantasy team doing? Oh my god, don't ask me that question. <laughs> Actually, it's doing very well. Thank you very much. But... Mine is in the toilet. Oh. Thanks for nothing, all of my players. Well, that's how it goes. That's fantasy for you. Yeah. Um, and where else do you write these days? Um, really, I've, I've been working on a book and I'm... Ooh, what's um, the book? It is about, okay, it's about cancer and demon souls, actually. Oh. Um, here's... A lot more than you wanted to know, but um, in 2010, about six months after I got married, I was diagnosed with lymphoma, and I had already played Demon Souls at that point. I got it right when it came out in the U.S., and as a sort of weird coping mechanism, I went through it again during my treatments and kind of how the game, kind of going through the game again and, and learning, interest, like, like Final Fantasy XII and Final Fantasy VIII, how to break it over my knee and how to figure things out, but some of the deeper themes and how that was sort of relating to what I was going through. And then um, after that ended a couple years later, dark souls came out and something else sort of happened that I, I guess I don't really want to spoil it. It's kind of a weird twist, but um, that's kind of what I've been working on and my blog occasionally, which is way, way less wordy than a final fantasy 12 localization story, but it's out there. Oh, uh, send me the link and I'll totally link it in your, in the show notes if you want me to. Okay, cool. All right. And of course you can find us at all of the usual places. I'm over at the underscore catbot. Go follow me on Twitter. Um, I promise that I don't always tweet about Minnesota sports teams. Just, 
you know, usually. I'll, I'll throw in the occasional art video game tweet, though, I promise. And of course, follow us on Facebook at USGamerNet and on YouTube and on Twitch and all of that good stuff. Um, and do me a favor and spread the word about Acts of the Blood God to your friends. Um, alas, not everybody knows that Active Time Babble has a sequel, a successor. Um, so if your friends ever tell you, hey, man, I sure do miss Active Time Babbles, tell them, well, Kat's back and she's been podcasting and stuff. So go tell them that and do me a favor and leave me, leave a review of the podcast over on iTunes. But otherwise, it is the most metal RPG podcast you can listen to. You're not seeing me, but I'm doing the like the the metal thing, which kind of the horns. Lit. You throwing up some devil horns right now? I'm I'm hooking horns right now. All right, Ronnie James Dio is super proud of you. <laughs> uh, Barbara Bush is very pr- proud of me as well. Oh, she's crushed right now. She apparently once went to Norway. It's totally off topic. She apparently <laughs> once went to Norway and flashed the hook'em horns. Oh, and really? and the headline was Bush Child Hails Satan <laughs> Salutes Satan or something like that because that's like the Satan salute in Norway. Oh yeah, that's wow, that's uh that's some TNT right there. That's something else. Um but <laughs> yeah, so next week I think we're going to be diving more into Legend of Legacy and also maybe the Witcher 3 expansion and just whatever the heck we end up talking about god knows that there's a lot coming up Uh, we're only a few weeks out from fallout 4 which is both very exciting and very terrifying oh my god especially since i will be reviewing it so (laughs) that's going to be a fun time but in any case until next time i've been cat bailey and john thanks for dropping by thank you for having me thank you very much and until next time happy adventuring 